1: Dave, we have good news. Listen to this Bloomberg headline from the weekend. UK's unpopular market is suddenly the place to be.
2: Wow. I mean, uh, finally, <laughs> finally, some good news out of Britain. Um, you know, Never mind the economy, never mind listings going elsewhere, never mind political chaos. Turns out Britain's the place to be.
1: Yeah, so that's a positive spin. I mean, the negative spin would be, well, we couldn't have fallen much further at the bottom, but we do have strategists from Barclays, HSBC, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan all saying positive things about the UK market. I'm Francine Lacroix.
2: And I'm David Merritt.
1: Welcome to In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations at the heart of the city of London.
2: This week, we speak with London Stock Exchange Chief Executive Julia Hoggart for a deep look at the UK equity market.
1: And we get her take on whether after all the negative headlines, things are finally starting to look up. Julie Hoggett, thank you so much for joining us. It, there has been so much negative headlines about the UK and what it means for the LSE and also attracting investments. Are we finally turning a corner?
3: I actually think we've been turning a corner in real life for quite a long time. I think it always takes time for fact, narrative and indeed perception to all catch up with one another. Uh, But I think there is a great deal of reason to be hugely optimistic.
1: So so what are the selling points? So I I think if you
3: take a look at London, it already is a dominant capital raising centre and it has a lot of strengths which are innate to London. Um, By any measure, we're the largest capital raising venue in Europe and we have an incredibly international Investor base who understand both domestic and international stories. We have a huge amount of capital that tracks uh, the FTSE and tracks the assets which are within it. And therefore, there is a structural supporting bid uh, behind it. It is one of the largest pools of dedicated AUM in Europe, if not the largest. And one of the other facets is that London actually enables companies of a certain scale to get the visibility and the attention that they need the us is dominated by some very large companies but every company has to start somewhere and grow and have the capacity to to continue to grow and get focus as a consequence of, of being on that journey the other thing i would say which i think is is really important i say this a lot i think i may have said, said it to you before is that a listing is for life not just for christmas um, there's an awful lot of focus on that initial ipo and i understand why there is but actually one of London's strengths is its ability to have phenomenal amounts of follow-on capital raising um, and that ongoing structural support for companies once they come to market, which enables them not just to have an initial idea, uh, but actually to be able to continue to finance their growth as they as they move through the gears um, of their development.
2: Something we've tracked extensively on this podcast has been the kind of the relative strength of the London market versus European and global competitors as well. And yeah. there was this big moment when the Paris exchange overtook London and it felt like this kind of tipping point of um, London's dominance. And now we're approaching parity again. Maybe London's going to edge a bit further. Is is that really important to you as the chief executive?
3: May I be blunt with you? I I understand (laughs) that I know that they were Bloomberg's numbers to be reported. I don't actually recognise those numbers in terms of the differential between the size of London and the size of Paris, um, because some of those numbers uh, disregard certain elements of what is listed in, in London. And so we are still the largest global centre by any measure. And I think it's about two trillion bigger. So I think the the narrative of, of Paris overtaking London is not something I actually factually recognise. Right.
2: Okay, that, so, so um, great. So if there's a different way of calculating it, fine. but And, and yet, obviously, London's relative size has shrunk compared to, to its biggest European competitor in the last few years, hasn't it? I mean, that trend has been real, whether or not you factor in different... Um, I,
3: I think you, yes. So, so you will see, relatively, you see the growth of certain stocks on certain markets that have gone up. Uh, so the luxury stocks
2: in Europe, basically.
3: Yeah. Right? And that's some really yeah. of that delta shift. But our numbers would say that London has got a £4.8 trillion uh, pounds of market cap and Paris has got £2.9 of market cap. So uh, the, the delta is still pretty significant. The other thing I'd say is that London is the only European venue that is in the top 10 of global exchanges. So I use this phrase repeatedly, but by any measure, we are the largest market in Europe. And we want to be, and we want to continue to be, and we should measure ourselves as being. We've actually raised more than the next two European venues combined this year, so far, year to date. And so th- the measure actually is, isn't quite the story that's been, been told. My focus though, is on continuing to grow uh, the UK market um, and addressing some of the things that I think we have needed to address for many years in terms of the amount of available risk capital uh, that is directed to our market. So my view is we're in a very strong position but there's a great deal of upside from here with the regulatory reform agenda that's that's going on.
1: But Julia, how much of a blow was it for London not to get the arm IPO?
3: It was big. I, I've been very honest about that. I've used the phrase, I think, on your show that I want us to be young, scrappy and hungry. We should fight for every company that we believe we can provide great financing to and particularly... Great homegrown UK companies that are world leaders uh, in what they do. And I'm not going to make any bones about wanting to fight for those uh, listings. There are a host of reasons why Arm went to the US. I fervently believe um, that there's still the potential for them to come to the UK as well. Um, I also believe they got in the US what they would have got in Europe or got in the UK. So it, it is a blow, but it's. It, that's no reason not to fight and it's no reason, I mean, certainly the last thing we should be doing is saying that it's not.
1: But is, is there a perception problem? So if you have a big IPO that was also meant to kickstart a lot of you know, other VCs potentially looking to list and, and they move elsewhere, and this was a UK company, does it actually you know nudge other companies to also list elsewhere? And does it mean that you need to fight harder in trying to, to gain that business?
3: I, I think the, the battle for listings of, of significant companies or, or any company is is pretty aggressive uh, nowadays. Um, and so you you have to fight for every listing. And that would be the case whether you're NASDAQ, whether you're NICI, whether you're London, whether you're Paris, whether you're Amsterdam. So that that is the nature of the environment. I actually think the CEOs I talk to understand the specific circumstances, understand the specific dynamics, and also recognize that there are um, upsides to being in London, they're upsides to being in New York, but they're downsides to being in New York as well. So they they get they get all of that. And so it's much more nuanced than that, even though I understand the, the headline that says this therefore means that, but actually in individual conversations with companies, I don't think it's quite as deep as it's quite like that.
2: Um, you, you mentioned, Judy, about the regulatory changes coming down the pipe. And one mm-hmm. of the things, again, we talked about a lot on this podcast is is about the appetite for risk amongst yep. UK, particularly in institutional investors. And the need, everyone seems to acknowledge the need for reform here and on how how to encourage the big pools of capital to take a bit more risk. Where are we on that kind of journey? And with the regulations, I mean, there's been a lot written and said about it, but mm-hmm. are we actually seeing any behavioral change by the big UK institutional investors?
3: So I have this phrase, five fingers in the glove, which is All the component pieces that we as the Capital Markets Industry Task Force think need to evolve in order to really build on the capital markets we have today into one that's even more powerful going forward. And the third finger of of that five fingers is the availability of risk capital. So we have the second largest single pool of of investable investable capital uh, anywhere in the world, in the UK, in our pension insurance money. We have, as a consequence of various regulatory changes over the years, caused a great deal of that to be taken out market and put into fixed income or into other assets. And we have also created a narrative around de-risking those portfolios rather than recognising, particularly for DC pension funds, that it's the largest single investment pot that people have in their lives. And it needs to be invested in risk capital in order to have the capacity to grow to the scale that it needs to give people the life that they want in retirement. Now, that is a conversation that is now much more prevalent both sides of the aisle from a political point of view across the city, uh, across the regulatory environment as well, regulators saying a lot of the same things. And we are starting to really focus on what are those changes that are necessary, uh, particularly in our pension market, to a degree in our insurance market. And I think increasingly, actually, in our retail savings market to maximise people's ability to direct risk capital into, to be honest, into the UK and into the UK listed markets. There were some mansion house reforms announced already. There was the mansion house compact. And I would expect to see uh, further reform in the autumn segment coming up. And when you talk to both sides of the aisle, there's consensus on the need to, to do this.
2: And this is happening around the world as well. As I understand we've looked at the Canadian system. Is that something that we want to kind of import some of those some of those regulations
3: fundamentally the more companies that you meet and great founders that you meet in the uk you realize the amazing number of companies we have here um and we actually create more unicorns in the uk than anywhere outside the us uh, china and india the challenge we have is that from a b and c rounds onwards it's not uk capital that's financing those companies so the pension funds in canada or australia all the VC funds from the west coast of the U.S. are all setting up in London to buy stakes in U.K. companies. In 2021, one Canadian pension fund invested more in a single ticket in a U.K. private company than the entirety of the U.K. pension funds invested in U.K. private companies in the same year. Now, that illustrates the fact that it's not the absence of high-quality assets, it's the fact that we, as, a, as an investing market, have not been focused on what's actually been under our noses. Um, And some of that has been a regulatory focus on liquidity. Some of it's been a regulatory focus on um, cost rather than return. Um, And some of it has been sort of bits of history, but this is a pivot to say, actually we need to have a mindset of investing across the private to public space in the UK to back those great companies that we are actually creating uh, rapidly but then we're financing uh, with capital from overseas.
1: So, but does it really matter where the capital is coming from? So is, is it a problem of scale that you have a British company or a British unicorn, it gets money from outside investors, but it's no longer a UK company or is that they don't scale it quick enough like we've seen in Silicon Valley?
3: So I think the the challenge is that ultimately it does matter where a company lists because ultimately where a company lists creates its locus, it creates its mind of management, it creates its headquarters. If companies fundamentally have a huge amount of capital that they're taking from overseas and there is an inexorable push from those uh, VCs or whatever to say, well, I'm familiar with NASDAQ or I'm familiar with Singapore, go over there, then the indexation pull for those companies to relocate ultimately in order to get the full benefit of access to liquidity in that market does run the risk that mind of management, headquarters, IP and indeed the high quality jobs actually leave the country. And so we do a great job in this country of starting great companies, getting them to a certain scale. But what we actually need to do is enable them then to scale from here and have access to capital. It's not saying we don't have international capital. It's that we actually need to have a reasonable balance of our own capital invested in it as well.
1: The, the government has taken steps to, to make sure that pension funds at least put a certain you know, part of their pension pot in, in growth companies. Is it enough? Do you have a figure of how much is needed to, to make a real difference?
3: I think the the 5% in the mansion house compact will make a shift, but I do think we need to be focusing on looking at the structure of our pension insurance markets more broadly in our investing markets. And one of the challenges we've had in the UK, which is particular to the UK, is all the regulatory changes that closed our defined benefit schemes and then turned them into very, very matched asset portfolios uh, with a lot of fixed income in them meant that as a total pot of pension assets, we have less that's directed towards equity and risk capital than you would have if you had you didn't have as much in runoff, basically. And so that's one of the challenges that we need to address. But the other challenge is that actually we need to think about consolidating. We have a very, very large number of very small DC schemes in the UK that are then regulated basically on lowest price rather than on best return. And if you want a diversified portfolio of assets, you need to get to a certain scale, particularly if you want to invest in private companies, because an awful lot of the value proposition is now being created in the private companies. And fundamentally, it's de-democratising the market and the access for pension savers if they can't get access to those assets, because it just means a smaller smaller number of people are benefiting in a greater and greater amount of the upside. But you need some structural changes in the way your pension funds are organised in order to be able to access and take advantage of those pools. One
2: of the things you you've said recently is around the issue of CEO pay in the UK. Mm-hmm. I and mean, Obviously, chief executives at FTSE 100 companies earn significantly less across the board, mostly, than in the US, than, than their equivalents. How necessary is that, do you think, to kind of raise the standards of performance of companies in Britain?
3: I understand entirely the issues around pay equity, and I understand particularly the challenges in terms of cost of living that exist right now. The the phrase that we often use in CMIT is, we want the UK to create globally consequential companies. Now, to be a globally consequential company, you need to be running from London or from the UK into markets in the US and Asia, et cetera. If in order to break into that particular market, you need to get the expert in that market to come and work for you, be that, say, in the US or Asia, and right now, because of the strictures that exist in the UK market that person who would be game-changing in terms of unlocking that value for the UK company, uh, unlocking that market, would have to be paid more than the CEO and wouldn't be able to have any performance-related pay on top of what they started at and is probably still taking a pay cut from what they'd be paid to work for an Asian company or a US company or even sometimes a European company, then we've got to have a conscious understanding of the potential impact that has on the ability to create globally consequential companies. And so it's really about having a rounded conversation about what we want to be and how where we want to come out in the UK. And to me it's about how we create these consequential companies so that we have high quality, high paid jobs in the UK and we're driving in growth and investing in growth that actually produces a better quality of living for people, produces taxes that pay for the NHS and, and everything else. It is a virtuous circle if you start investing in yourself. And and that's the conversation that is sort of missing in the, in the pay conversation. Um, as CMIT, one of the other things that we did is we actually objectively, we, we commissioned Willis, Towns Watson, it's on the CMIT website, see it, to do a side-by-side analysis of the remuneration statements that the proxies were voting on for the UK, for Europe and the US. Now, roughly speaking, in the US, they say we will reward exceptional performance and we'll take global benchmarking into account. So if you're kind of looking at Moderna and Pfizer and GSK and AstraZeneca or whatever, you're going to be looking at what those peers and equivalent companies are being paid to get the highest quality staff that you want to lead those companies. Um, in Europe, it says we'll reward exceptional performance. And in certain statements in the UK, it says we will explicitly disregard global benchmark. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. what we've actually done is we've hamstrung ourselves from creating a level playing field with which compete with the rest of the world. Um, and it doesn't mean that's appropriate for every company because if you're a purely domestic company, then obviously your price points are going to be entirely domestic. But if you're trying to create a globally consequential company from the UK, which, to be honest, the history of us as a capital market and us as an economy is of doing, then we need to make sure that we've understood the consequences if we have a different approach to the approach that's in Europe and the US.
1: Will Labour change anything if they come into power? How much focus do you think they'll have on the City of London? Have they reached out to talk about certain propositions? The one thing that
3: I've observed over the last year and a half, particularly with the Capital Markets Industry Task Force, is a massive amount of consensus across both the city and on both sides of the aisle about the need for this reform. And I think there is pretty clear consensus in both parties that this needs to happen. Fundamentally, if you if you slim it down, the UK has gradually, over the last 20, 30 years, stopped investing in itself. And the city has, has done a great job of driving the UK's place as a global financial centre, but it has sometimes not... Uh, focus as much on how it directs capital into the UK economy to drive growth. And fundamentally, whether you're the Tory party or the Labour party, that objective matters enormously. I've never seen a level of consensus around this agenda.
2: When I look at your website, uh, Judy. the big banner is about seizing the green growth opportunity and when you see what the rhetoric coming out from the government at the moment now and the pushback on, on net zero how optimistic are you as london as a center for green finance and how important will it be to the mix of the stocks that we have dominating the london stock exchange in the years to come
3: so the uk actually has Kind of world leading structures to support financing and the understanding of the greening of the economy. And look, I fervently believe that the just transition to net zero is the stewardship challenge of our generation. And there is a huge amount of opportunity there in terms of the transition of economic activity and the new opportunities that will come from it. Notwithstanding what's happened over the course of the last um, kind of few weeks, the commitment to that underlying regulatory structure is completely unchanged. Um, and therefore I think London could continue to be a global leader in green finance.
1: When you look at the city of London and how it's changed over the last fifteen to twenty years, I know you've spoken in the past about diversity and inclusion um, you know, being as important as climate change. Like what are we doing better than you thought we would and what are we doing worse?
3: On climate change or on diversity and inclusion? Both.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, so I actually think we've got some we've got a lot of momentum on the financing of the transition to net zero so I mean look as as an exchange as an example we're one of the we're certainly the only exchange in Europe that has got um, green the green economy mark for both listed equities and funds Um, we have a huge sustainable bond market that's growing at a very significant rate year on year and we have the world's first voluntary carbon market financing market all of which are up and running operating out of London and so from that point of view that infrastructure and ecosystem is there so if you told me that this is where the sustainable bond market would be in sort of 2010, 11, 12, when I was setting up one of the first green bond businesses in the streets in, in, in the city in London, I don't think I'd have believed you in terms of how far and how fast it's become embedded into the total amount of capital that's raised. Um, and now that it's moving into an understanding of equities into the fund market and into the larger carbon market, then I think there's a great deal to be optimistic about there. And I think that the UK has been a leader in focusing on to be honest, the quite boring nuts and bolts that make markets function in service of that objective. From a diversity and inclusion point of view, I think we are making a lot of progress. Um, but I think the most important thing is to recognise and understand the situation and then make commitments to make positive change. So the the UK is, is leading already, um, actually from a global point of view, I think we're probably only behind France in terms of gender representation on listed company boards. We still need to Work on on certain uh, parts of the financial market ecosystem. It's fair to say that VCP and, and asset management don't come out as well uh, as banking, investment banking, and indeed places like the exchange in terms of the the gender parity. And there is a huge amount we still need to do for social mobility and inclusion. But I think we are we are continuing year on year on year to make to make progress in that regard.
2: Although I don't have the number in front of me, but the amount of female chief executives in FTSE hundred companies it's a pretty low number isn't it
3: yeah for 1st 100 we do well when we get to 10 um and we need to and and i i I suspect it's pretty similar in most places around the world so the next the next challenge once you've cracked the diversity at board level is to crack the diversity at executive level and that is increasingly where the focus is and fundamentally you need to build that bench of executives with the experience to be able to step step up into the c-suite and into the ceo seat and i think it is making progress and we are Kind of very conscious of that as a, as a market across both uh, the uk i think and, and europe and the us
1: julia thank you so much for joining us today thank you so thanks for listening to this week's in the city we'll be back next week
2: but in the meantime if you like our show please do head on over to wherever you listen to podcasts and rate review and subscribe it really does help people find the show
1: yeah we really want you to rate and review please please do that this episode was hosted by me francine lacqua
2: and me david Merritt. it was produced by summer Sadi, with additional editing by blake maples
1: and special thanks to julia
2: hubby